one of the things that we do that's different from other firms is I intentionally don't keep track of the costs that we're spending in cases. Other people in my office keep track of those numbers because I don't want to know. I don't want it to influence you know, what I'm doing in the case. Hey, everybody, this is Jeremy Lynch and Landon Harlan from Obu Interactive. You're listening to the Cases for Causes podcast. Today, we're talking about medical malpractice litigation with Bob Vogie of Vogie Law. He has spent the last 38 years developing his expertise, trying cases involving personal injury, wrongful death, medical fraud, medical malpractice, defective products, and major truck and car crashes. He has been recognized by Best Lawyers as the Personal Injury Litigation Lawyer of the Year in San Diego and has represented claimants in excess of 30 Kaiser arbitrations. And that will be our focus of today's podcast. Thanks for joining us, Bob. Good morning. So this is an interesting subtopic of medical malpractice, which I feel is a term that gets thrown around the country quite often. And in particular, the element of arbitration. In California, we have a medical system called Kaiser. And while some of those who sign up for Kaiser may not know it, but if they do have an issue of medical malpractice, they go into Kaiser arbitration. I understand you recently had a case known as the Vargas case, and that was your client. I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit more about that because we understand there were some groundbreaking points. Sure. I represented Jaden Vargas and his mother, Sonia Vargas. Jaden suffered a pretty severe life-altering brain injury as a result of multiple acts of malpractice by Kaiser caregivers over the course of more than a week. A couple of the interesting things about the case is that Mrs. Vargas, who absolutely just won't quit, she's been taking care of her son full-time for nine years, absolutely refused to give up on a potential case against Kaiser, and they sought out reviews by more than 15 law firms who specialize in medical malpractice cases to review the case. And all of these firms rejected the case before they came to us. They came to us about five months before Jaden's statute would run on his eighth birthday with about 65,000 pages worth of medical records that we had to go through and glean out key information. And then we had to have it reviewed by an expert to confirm what our thoughts were about the case. So it took an exceptional amount of time and effort just to even determine whether or not there was a case before we could undertake it. We then filed the action against Kaiser in the, in the system that we're going to discuss, probably took between 35 and 40 depositions of Kaiser doctors, nurses, and other personnel, retained 10 expert witnesses. And one of the unique things about the case for the first time in my career, not just with Kaiser, but in any medical malpractice case, we had so thoroughly worked up the case and knew it so well that when it came time to take Kaiser's expert depositions leading up to the arbitration, Kaiser conceded both the issues of negligence or liability and the issue of causation and went to arbitration strictly on the issue of damages. And that was the first time that ever happened in my career. Defendants in, in medical malpractice cases sometimes concede liability, sometimes concede causation, but almost never 
concede both, particularly in a case like this, where they understood that we were going to put $30 million in economic damages on the board. So that was an unusual aspect of the case. It went to arbitration. The arbitrator awarded about $26 million to Jaden Vargas, and the case subsequently resolved. So let me ask you a question to put it in plain terms for us to understand. When you're saying the admitted liability, they're basically saying, yes, we were at fault. We did wrong. Is that correct? Yeah. So basically admitting that there were multiple acts of malpractice by doctors and nurses every day over the course of seven or eight days and admitting that even as late as day eight, if they had complied with the standard of practice and care, that Jaden wouldn't have suffered the brain injury and the, and the major sequelae of harms and losses that he had. That's quite uncommon, right? Unheard of. Unheard of that they will admit to the fact that they were at fault. And then causation, is that, is there something different in terms of the definition of causation? Well, under California law, the, you have to prove, first, you have to prove the negligence or the violations of the standard of care, and you have to prove that those violations of the standard of care or negligent acts were a probable cause of the person's injuries and damages. They have to prove that those negligent acts were, again, under California law, it's defined as a substantial factor in causing the harms and losses. So, Frequently in medical malpractice cases, smart defense lawyers, if they think the acts of malpractice are pretty hard to explain, they'll concede those to give themselves some credibility in front of a jury and just say, hey, look, even though we did some things wrong, these wrongful acts didn't harm this person. They can't meet their burden of proof that these negligent acts caused harm. So to have the lawyers for Kaiser concede both liability and causation, in my experiences, it never happened in any cases that I've been involved in, and I've never heard of it happening. I understand that your recovery is uh, now record-setting, occurred in 2022, and that, is that the, the highest that's been recovered in California? That's my understanding from what we've been able to determine that the verdict, and it is a verdict, was the highest arbitration award or verdict against Kaiser in California that's ever been recorded. So, Bob, that's interesting information to know about the Kaiser system and how it's different. If someone is listening to this podcast right now, they or someone they love has been at Kaiser, they feel that there has been some type of serious medical malpractice that has occurred. What is it that you could share with them in terms of three tips or the most important things to know when it comes to preserving their case and how to best take that approach if they are intending to file something against Kaiser? The two or three things I would tell people who are considering the potential of pursuing some sort of an action against Kaiser is number one, get copies of all of your Kaiser medical records and understand that they're your records. Sometimes Kaiser and other medical providers balk at giving people records. What I tell people is they're your records, they're not Kaiser's. You call Kaiser and you say, I'm going to pay for the records. 
how much time do you need? It shouldn't take them because they're all electronically generated. It shouldn't take more than 24 or 48 hours. So I'd say, number one, get all of your records as quickly as possible and make sure you have everything. Doctor's records, nurse's records, medication records, pharmacy records, radiology reports, all of the records. That's item number one. Item number two, Kaiser's arbitration system is controlled by an outfit called the OIA, the Office of Independent Administration, which is essentially controlled by Kaiser. So the second thing you need to do is you need to send a letter to Kaiser under California law, basically generically outlining what your allegations are against Kaiser and making a demand for arbitration. They require you to send them $150 to start the process. Third, and probably the most important thing, is to search for a lawyer who's got not only experience in medical malpractice cases, but who has a lot of experience in dealing with Kaiser. So I typically tell people when you're interviewing lawyers for cases like this, the primary questions that you should ask are, for example, how many cases like mine have you had in the last year, the last five years? And perhaps more importantly, how many cases like mine have you taken to verdict, either in front of a jury or to a Kaiser arbitration panel? Because there is no substitute for experience. And, and particularly when you're dealing with Kaiser, because the system of how you get from the beginning to the end is different than how you get from the beginning to the end in a case that you would file in, in a superior court in California. So those would be the three primary things. Is this also something that the firm will handle for people or at least guide them through this process? Should they come and contact you and speak with you? Well, exactly. Yeah. We, we basically tell people when they get in touch with us, you know, you have a choice. You can either get the records on your own and we outline for them the process to follow in order to get the records or we can tell them that they can sign authorizations and give them to us, which gives us authorization to get the records. And then we give them an idea of what it will cost to send our process servers out to get the records. And so we give people that choice. So that is interesting that you can approach the Kaiser system and ask them for the records, which they should hopefully return to you in 24 to 48 hours. Sometimes they may not. What would you recommend someone can do if they're stuck in that situation or feel like they're kind of getting pushed around? Well, first of all, like you said, you know, we tell them to contact medical records directly, identify who they are, whose records they need, and basically say, I need records over this period of time. I'm willing to pay for them. I need everything, doctor's records, nursing records, radiology reports, prescriptions, everything. And I want to come down there in 48 hours to get them. And if there's a delay or a stall or any sort of equivocation, then we tell people to say, look, they're my records, not yours. You're required to give them to me in a reasonable period of time under California law. And if you're not going to do that, then I'm probably going to have to retain a lawyer, number one. And number two, I'm going to file a complaint with the Joint Hospital Accreditation Committee in the state of California uh, with a complaint that I asked for my records and you refused or delayed in getting them to me. And it's been our experience that if you ask in that fashion, 99% of the time, you're going to get the records in a reasonable period of time. 
Jaden Vargas's mom was not only one of the best clients that we ever had, but also one of the best people that w- that we've ever met. And she absolutely refused to take no for an answer with anything having to do with her son. So Bob, can you tell me a little bit more about uh, the Permanente system? I understand the doctor's roles there, not all of them perhaps, but maybe you can help clarify for me. I understand that there is some financial benefit associated with patient care. Can you tell us something that I think is gonna surprise a lot of listeners? Sure. If you're a partner in the Permanente Medical Group, you get paid a base salary on an annual basis, and you get paid a bonus that's based upon the profitability of the group and the Kaiser system. And it's not unusual for a doctor to have their salary doubled by the bonus that they receive on an annual basis. And the profitability of a, of a healthcare organization like Kaiser is based upon keeping expenses down which means keeping patients away from expensive testing like MRIs, keeping them out of the hospital or shortening their hospital stay, referring them to a specialist who may want to run a battery of expensive testing. So in my view, that's a financial conflict of interest between the patient and the doctor. And so we get into deposition sometime as an example. If, if I have a patient who had a huge delay in getting an MRI done that resulted in spinal paralysis, uh, I may be taking the deposition of the doctor who was supposed to order the MRI. And I may ask a question like, well, uh, doctor, isn't it true that you have a financial interest or motivation in not ordering an MRI for your patient? And the response will typically be, you know, outrage. Well, absolutely not. I say, well, well, let me ask you this. You're a partner in a permanent medical group. Yes, I am. Well, you get paid a bonus on an annual basis that's based upon the profitability of the group. Yes, I do. And the profitability of the group is dependent on keeping expenses down, yes, and that would be expenses associated with expensive testing like MRIs. Yeah, that's true. So you do have a financial interest or motivation in not ordering tests like MRIs for your patients. I mean, and you're not going to get a good answer to that. It, it, that's really the kind of question that you ask. It doesn't matter what the answer is. I've had that experience uh, a number of times. And again, most people, including most lawyers, are not even aware of, of that financial aspect of the Kaiser structure. I would absolutely love to be a fly on the wall and watch this type of deposition go down and just feel that the person sitting on the other side other side of the table from you might be squirming in their seat. Squirming amongst other things, yeah. <laughs> Bob, I know you told us in one of the pre-podcast meetings that the Vargas case was one that several firms, and we're talking, you know, tens, if, you know, if if not approaching over 50 firms, declined to go through or to accept the case or, or try to take it on. And I think that speaks a little bit to how you guys do things at Vogie Law. Can you talk about the Vogie way and and kind of what differentiates your firm from some of your competitors? Sure. There there are probably a, a few things. First and foremost, we recognize that for people who are coming to us with cases that aside perhaps from 
marriage or the birth of their children, that what they're bringing to us is probably going to be, in terms of the outcome, is probably going to be the most important thing that ever happens to them in their life and will have a dramatic impact, not only on the quality of their lives, but the, the quality of their family's lives. So we take that responsibility pretty seriously. We tell people when we make the choice to represent them that they need to have the same mindset as us, which is from the moment we take your case into our office, everything we do is done with the understanding that your case will go to trial or will go to arbitration. And so we are working from day one in order to prepare your case to go to trial or go to arbitration. A lot of firms bring cases in, try to get them set up in a position to settle. And then when the case doesn't settle, they're not prepared, ready, willing, or able to take the case to trial. We do things exactly in the opposite fashion. We prepare our cases for trial. If they settle, they settle. We also know that the best way to get a case resolved for a fair amount is to prepare it for trial. So that's our mindset. We also keep a cap on the number of cases we handle at any given time because we want to make sure that everyone who works in my office and works with me is going to be familiar with your case. So if you call and you have questions, that anyone who works in my office will know about your case and be able to respond to those questions. I tell people if they want to speak to me directly that unless I'm in trial, or out of the country, they'll hear back from me in 24 to 48 hours. And so we work cases aggressively. And, and one of the things we try to do, if we have the time, if there's not a statute of limitations pressing us to file a complaint or notice an arbitration, we take the time necessary to, to literally get all our ducks in a row, get all the records, get them reviewed, get expert witnesses lined up before we've even filed a complaint or, or notified Kaiser we're going to pursue an arbitration. So we get off the ground running once that happens. We know exactly whose depositions to take. And so we are way, way out in front of the defense lawyers who are coming in on behalf of the defendants in these cases. And part of that idea is when you do that for a number of years and you establish that kind of reputation, when these defense lawyers and these defendants in these cases get a letter from us, they have an impression. They know they're, they're in trouble and they know they're way behind. And that's the message that, that we want them to have. So that's, that's probably the, the biggest thing that separates us from, from most other people who do what we do. How would you say your firm does things differently when it comes to evaluating some of the cases that you may or may not take on? Well, I think first and foremost uh, is we do a lot of the legwork or the hard work up front. The Vargas case being the example, you know, going through 60,000 pages of medical records, getting them summarized, getting them into a chronology the huge amount of hours that that would take, and then immediately contacting key expert witnesses to get them to review the key records and to tell us whether or not we did in fact have a case that we could pursue, that we did have evidence to meet our burden of proof on the negligence or liability, the causation, the causal connection between the negligence, liability, and our clients' harms and losses. And then we immediately start working it up from there, we, we don't wait. Again, I think the reason 
why we took that case and so many other firms didn't take that that case is because they didn't want to put the time and effort into reviewing the records. And secondly, they realized Jaden had a severe brain injury. So they would know that the defendants, in this case, Kaiser, uh, would put up a huge fight on every issue in the case, liability, causation, and damages. And they knew that that would be expensive. One of the things that we do that's different from other firms is I intentionally don't keep track of the costs that we're spending in cases. Other people in my office keep track of those numbers because I don't want to know. I don't want it to influence what I'm doing in the case. Vargas, as an example, by the time we got that case through arbitration, we had about $350,000 in hard costs. And I never knew that number until the arbitration was over. Because again, I didn't want that sort of financial factor to, to influence what I was doing or not doing in the case. And I think that probably is also something that makes my firm different than most. I think that's the first time I've ever heard an attorney say something like, they don't want to know the investment of their own funds of hundreds of thousands of dollars into a client's case and they operate on a contingency fee. So I applaud you there. That's, that's got to be one of the first times I've ever heard about that. You intentionally run quite a small practice. That seems to me to be a bit of a differentiator. Can you expand upon that in this world of, of law firms that are claiming to be the largest and claiming to be the biggest why do you stay with as few people as you do have? Well, you know, I learned a long time ago uh, in my line of work, as well as pretty much any other line of work, bigger does not necessarily make you better. I think there's a natural temptation in what lawyers who do what I do for a living to want to ex expand the size of their practice and expand the, the size of the net that they're casting hire more lawyers, take in more cases. And I think that that leads to some practices that may not be in the best interest of the clients they're representing. If they get to spread too thin, they have too many cases that they're working, they may not have the time to work up an individual case the way it should be worked up, and they may not have the financial resources, the money, to put into an individual case that needs to be put in to put the client in the best position to get the best resolution of their case. So with that in mind, we keep a cap on the number of cases that we handle at any given time because we don't wanna be spread too thin. We wanna be able to concentrate uh, on the details uh, of the individual cases of the people that we're representing and we wanna make sure that we have the financial resources to see things through, add into that the fact that for me, any case that comes into my office, I'm taking personal responsibility for. Keeping my practice small allows me to do that. And it allows me, in at least in my opinion, to provide the best possible service for the people that we choose to represent. I, I mean, to give you an idea, we typically screen 1,300 cases a year and we typically take about 15. I think the first time I actually saw your name in the newspaper was about a medical fraud case. And then I've, I've seen it also in the recent news uh, regarding a Collins case, I believe. And uh, this is an interesting one. 
Can you tell us a little bit about the Collins case? Sure. The Collins case involved a young man who, about 30 years old at the time, who got ill and he kind of holed up in his apartment and he was hallucinating. And county sheriffs here in San Diego had two encounters with him. And they made an assumption that he was intoxicated, wound up taking him to jail. Mistake number one, the admitting nurse at the jail, whose job it is to determine whether or not somebody's physically or and mentally fit to get into jail, admitted him when he shouldn't have. He fell and hit his head twice on the concrete floor overnight in jail. Despite the fact there was video of it, nobody came to his assistance. And by the time he got to the hospital, he had a subdural hematoma. His electrolytes were so far out of whack that he wound up with a significant brain injury. We started out with that case, looking at it from a medical malpractice standpoint of what happened at the hospital by the time he got there. And then we backtracked and we were looking at the records of the arrest. Then we looked at the records from the jail and we realized that what happened in the hospital was at the very tail end of a sequence of events that had evolved over 48 hours from his initial arrest to his being put in jail that were all connected. And that if he hadn't have been arrested and taken to jail, if he'd been taken to the hospital right away like he should have been, that what happened to him would not have happened. So we wound up suing the county of San Diego, which is, if you check the news, has had a number of deaths and injuries to people in their jails. The Collins case was really the first big verdict against the county of San Diego for issues related to the jails and gave a lot of exposure to that issue. And there have been a number of successful cases since. And now the county is in the process of trying to clean up all the problems they have in their jails. So it was a pretty significant case. So another interesting case that the Vogue Law Firm is working on is I understand you're taking on school bullying. And in particular, there was the Toronto case against San Diego Unified School District. Can you share with us a little bit about that? I'm sure any parent would want to know more, particularly about how a plaintiff's law firm is doing its part to stop school bullying. As I mentioned in response to another question, you know, we, we screen a lot of cases every year and and I I personally look at each one every, every one crosses my desk to make a determination whether or not we want to look at it further or not and I've gotten to the point in my career where I, I'm looking for cases that I think not only are interesting but also that I think are important and cases that I think a lot of other firms that do what I do will either A, not be interested in the case, or B, won't have the time or resources necessary to properly work the case up. Every once in a while, we, we, we get a call about a school bullying case. Unfortunately, it's becoming more common. We could have a longer conversation about why I think that is, but some girl in middle school who was being harassed by a bigger, stronger, slightly older girl for a number of months. Family reported it to the school, said they were concerned, they were afraid for their daughter's safety. This was all in writing. And the school basically kind of 
looked the other way, said, you know, we'll take care of it. They never did. She wound up being assaulted in the girl's bathroom at lunch. You know, like I said, three or four months later, physically assaulted by this other girl in the presence of about 10 other girls in the bathroom. One girl actually video recorded the assault. The young girl was just devastated physically and emotionally. She had post-traumatic stress disorder. They had to take her out of the school. She had to get counseling. She wound up going to two or three other schools over the course of several years, didn't want to go to school. And so we took that case on. And of course, you know, we found out that the, the people who were involved in this in the school district, the, the teachers and the administrators <laughs> had violated written school and school district policy in terms of the level of supervision. There was supposed to be a teacher in close proximity to that bathroom during the lunch hour, but the teachers who were responsible for that weren't there among other things. And unfortunately, as we got involved in the case, the response from the school was to blame the victim, to essentially say that the young girl that I represented had brought this on herself. The fact that I exposed that defense is probably why that case settled without going to trial, because their, their lawyers realized that that was probably, that defense was probably going to pour gasoline on, on a pre-existing fire. I think there's plenty of adults today that can look back, remember being a kid and would and would be thankful that they hopefully did not have to go through something like that, especially with the advent of camcorders right there in our cell phones and can only imagine how traumatic that must have been for her. Well, you know, the, the good news and bad news uh, about these devices obviously is this kind of thing immediately gets put up on social media which really exacerbates the damage uh, to the child. You know, think about it. When you're a 12 or 13-year-old girl, you know, your image and how other people view you is, is so important. And to have that posted immediately on social media, which it was, can be devastating. Of course, the good news is, like other civil rights cases, you've got the video uh, to prove what happened so that it, you know, that it can't be denied. My daughter's just starting her high school career as a freshman and the school bullying, I've already had my eyes open to some of the things that happen when you get older kids, teenagers in the same setting as some people who are a little less mature and, and the opportunities for bullying. So that definitely resonates with me. You mentioned that social media and how it can be you know, very detrimental uh, when things are shared immediately. I want to highlight some of the good things that we get out of social media. I know many of our listeners are aware that legendary broadcaster Vin Scully passed away recently, and your firm posted on social media about his passing. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what he meant to you personally and, and why you felt it was important to help celebrate his life? Sure. I would, And I would start obviously by saying my experience was not unique, but having grown up in the Los Angeles area in the 60s and 70s, Vin Scully was kind of the voice of Southern California. You know, a lot of kids my age were listening to him in bed on our transistor radio with our earplug in, listening to Dodger games when we were supposed to be asleep. And the other thing that was unique is you go to the ballpark, Dodger Stadium, 
And even though people are watching the game, everybody's got their transistor radio. So the sound of his voice is reverberating in the ballpark. And I, I think a lot of people, he had that ability to make you feel like he was part of your family. And it, it was to the day he retired, I, I always would tell my wife, just to turn on a Dodger game and hear the sound of his voice was was relaxing and comforting to me. And, and you know, a couple of other things. When he passed, I mean, he, letters were written, people were posting memorials, and a lot of people had the same feeling about him. There were people who, you know, writing in who said they learned how to speak English by listening to his voice. And people who Spanish was a first language were proud to say they'd gone from listening to Jaime Harin, the, the Spanish language broadcaster, to listening to him. You know, he just had that gentle quality that kind of his voice kind of got woven into the fabric of people's lives. You know, the guy was really one of a kind, and he was also, you know, obviously scrupulously honest. I mean, like a lot, unlike a lot of broadcasters now who are, are really homers, when he saw a problem with something the Dodgers did, he would say so, you know, just like you would expect a family member to. So I think that's probably a uh, a pretty good synopsis of, of him, and I just talking about him. I can I can hear the sound of his voice in in the back of my head. So that's really good stuff. I have similar memories growing up in Chicago of of Harry Carey. Now, a little different personality than Vin, but that same kind of you associate childhood memories and and being part of the family. You know, whether it's afternoon baseball after school or you know in in your case night games in in uh, Chavez Ravine. Bob, I really want to thank you today for joining us. It was great to talk to you and get some insight into medical malpractice litigation and how you do things at Vogue Law. Thank you very much for having me. If you'd like to find out more about Bob and Vogue Law, please visit vogelaw.com or on Facebook. Check them out at facebook.com slash Law. I also want to thank everyone out there for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of Cases for Causes and you'd like to help us, hit that subscribe button share it with others, post about it on social media, and leave us a rating or review. To catch all the latest from Obu Interactive, you can follow us on Instagram at Obu Interactive or visit us on the web at obuinteractive.com. And until next time, work passionately, live peacefully.